Hello, and welcome to the Navacast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. My co-host, Jeff, also known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple of months off the podcast for work. Soon as he's back, we'll jump right back into the weekly Song of Ice and Fire podcast with Sansa's third chapter, In a Storm of Swords. In the meantime, I've been picking up right where I left off with J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, and I'll get back to that next week with the beginning of Book 5. But in the meantime, we're going to be doing a special guest episode today on a very interesting movie. Uh, I was so happy to have Stefan Sasse back on the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on, and thanks for coming up with this. I really enjoyed the movie. I'm glad we get a chance to talk about it. Thank you for having me. I also really enjoyed the movie, and I think it's worth talking about, as we will do at length now. At length, absolutely. So the movie we're going to be talking about today is The Last Duel, directed by Ridley Scott, which came out last year. And it's, it's a movie adapted from the book The Last Duel, A True Story of Trial by Combat in Medieval France by Eric Yeager. And it's, it's divided into three parts, uh, telling roughly the same story uh, from three perspectives. And appropriately enough, the, the three writers were two men and one woman. It was Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, and Nicole Holof Center, kind of mirroring the structure of the story that way. And the, the obvious comparison point, I think, for this movie is Rashomon, the classic 1950 Japanese film in which a violent encounter is retold from multiple POVs, including a dead character chiming in via psychic. And Rashomon also pivots on the question of honor with regards to a potential rape, as the last duel does, with men claiming to have fought valiantly for a woman who manipulated them, while she claims they both treated her horribly. And another witness says the men fought like cowards. And The Last Duel adopts this pattern with more emphasis on how limited imagination and empathy are for women in this society. And this comes through very strongly in a third section, which we're going to talk about, written by Nicole Holof Center. But it's what's so fascinating about the movie is the way it shows you that theme and that idea through its structure, through how it's written and through the different perspectives. It's, it's definitely what makes this movie so fascinating and worth talking about. And uh, beyond the writing, this, of course, this movie was directed by Ridley Scott. So uh, what did what do you think of him as a director, stuff, And what do you think of the, the style he brings to this? I like uh, Ridley Scott as a director. Uh, and the obvious point for reference here is a movie you might have heard of, which is Kingdom of Heaven. And uh, some two things uh, just jumped uh, onto me, uh, you know, w when you put these movies side by side. And one, uh, both are minor, uh, but they, uh, I just I just have a, a knack for it, basically. Uh, one is the flags and banners, because Scott, for some reason, he loves his flags and banners. Uh, I have this trivia about Kingdom of Heaven that he had a flag budget of $100,000. <laughs> <laughs> and it's and it seems like he's doing the same thing here as well. You know, the, there are so many uh, banners flapping in the wind all the time. That's imagery he really likes. And I have not seen this in any other uh, movies set in the Middle Ages, uh, you know. And it is so important to, uh, because these people are... Um, are identifying themselves with it. You know, it's just so distinctive and so different from how we today uh, basically uh, identify ourselves and make our entrance uh, in the world uh, and stuff like that. So uh, that really springs. And the other thing, of course, is strong color filters. Uh, you have the same thing uh, also going on in Kingdom of Heaven or in Gladiator, uh, where he really likes to put strong color filters on everything to give you a certain mood uh, and feeling. You know, you, you know when it's hot because there is a very, very yellow filter. Uh, you know when you need to feel good because then the colors really pop. And you know when you are not supposed to feel good because then you, you get all grainy and ashy uh, and stuff like that. And uh, you can see all this uh, very clearly in effect here uh, in The Last Duel as well. 
Yeah, that's a great point. I think even that it ties into the costumes. Like at one point, Marguerite is wearing a, a pink dress, but in the color filter, it just looks still so drab, still blending into all the the grays and browns and blacks around her. There's that great wintry atmosphere that you see also in the beginning of Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, really, Scott loves his digital snow. He uses that effect whenever he can. And then in the more kind of interiors, there's all those wonderful painterly shots lit by candles and fireplaces. And that's one thing I do uh, really enjoy about really Scott movies is that they're always really carefully lit. Strong attention to shadows. He's very fastidious like Stanley Kubrick. And then whenever he cuts into close-ups, you, you often get something going on with Jean, especially to suggest his emotional state. He'll have a fire behind him to suggest his rage, stuff like that. So definitely a very, very well-directed. Really Scott always has a distinctive style. Uh, I don't always love his stories. This is kind of an exception to the rule in that regard, in that I think he was working from an unusually strong st- script for him. And to compare it, to, to compare Last Duel to some of his previous movies, you mentioned uh, Gladiator in passing. That's definitely, I think, a, a, a familiar reference point for people. Uh, the, the, his interest in the spectacle of violence really comes through in that movie, what it means to stage violence and to witness it, to be entertained by it. That's something that is a strong through line in The Last Duel as well. Gladiator, you know, while being set in yield Roman times, is much less about the Empire versus the Republic that it kind of pretends to be about. And I think it's more of a, a commentary on, on modern media. Media has existed when the movie came out. I mean, not, you know, probably not as, as specific as The Last Duel is with its Me Too era commentary, some, some lines of which in The Last Duel are very unsubtle and appropriately so. But I think that's that's probably more his focus on with Gladiator more than the historical realities. Yeah, I'm not very hard on Gladiator. Uh, I have to say, it's been uh, it's been some time since I've last seen it, so mm-hmm. maybe it comes off better now. But I doubt it for some. Uh, <laughs> I, doubt, I, I don't see much reason to revisit it. It has a very garbled message. Yeah, there is something in there about media and spectacle, but it gets it is very diluted with the rest, and you have this Agreed. very ham-fisted story about democracy and. Uh, that and it, it, the movie is also historically absolute garbage. I mean, uh, the historians that they consulted sued them, so they uh, cannot use their names <laughs> in the credits, and for a reason. And uh, interestingly, uh, as a as a side, the um, extended cut of Gladiator is much worse than the original uh, cinema cut, despite being longer. Where in the Kingdom of Heaven we have the very opposite effect. Uh, Kingdom of Heaven is almost unwatchable uh, in the cinema cut, whereas right. Gladiator, you, please do not watch the extended cut if you haven't seen it yet. <laughs> it just adds more of the incest stuff. <laughs> I've I've never seen the extended cut of Gladiator. I'll probably take that as a win. I'll uh, I'll, I'll probably bypass. Yeah, I also haven't seen it in ages. I think certain scenes are probably still effective. I do think it feels, in retrospect, kind of a rough draft for better movies he would make later. I think he was dipping his toes into some interesting pools and would wade deeper in the movies to come. One of which, absolutely, yeah, is is Kingdom of Heaven. One of my favorite of his, especially at the extended edition, the theatrical cut. Uh, You know, it's not just less interesting. The storytelling is chopped to absolute bits. It's, It's extremely difficult to keep track of what's going on. But we did an episode for patrons, Jeff and I, along with Luke, a.k.a. Luke is amazing. We did an episode on the extended cut of Kingdom of Heaven a while back. So if you're one of our patrons, check that out if you haven't already. And that I think that movie is also more about the time in which it came out than the time in which it's set. I think, you know, even though it it nods to some historical realism with regards to the Crusades, I think it's really more about the mid-aughts, the, the backdrop of war in the Middle East and the religious divide used to justify massacres and land grabs and a desire to create some kind of multicultural ethos out of that. I think Scott was definitely speaking to the Iraq War era more than anything else there, I think. 
Yeah, I absolutely love this movie. And you need to basically pause the podcast for a second because I need to gush about it. I wasn't invited <laughs> the first time around, so I have to take uh, to, uh, take this uh, to this option here. Uh, where I just said Gladiator has this garbled message, basically. The message of um, Kingdom of Heaven comes out clear uh, all the time, you know. It is about tolerance. It is about compromise. The uh, peace as the pearl without price, as a terrorist we know might say. Um, <laughs> the uh, political plotting is extremely intricate uh, and uh, and cleverly done. Um, what you have is less characters in this movie than archetypes. They are personifying ideas in institutions. And yet it works because the actors are great and everyone gets scenes to illustrate uh, those beliefs and those concepts in in small but discernible and human mm. scenes. Uh, it is a very great commentary on knighthood, what it means to be a knight, grounded in historical fiction, but with obvious allure uh, to our own reality, which is something we will get back to when we talk about The Last Duel. Then uh, you already mentioned the parallels to the Middle East circuit 2005. It was a very prescient uh, message and one that is well received even today, I would say. Mm -hmm. It also has some very good fight scenes. Absolutely. And it is the rare movie where, where you have armies clashing uh, at one another and where the military goal is not total victory or annihilation. You know, usually when armies, especially armies with swords, are clashing at each other. One of them, uh, at least, is fighting for pure survival, uh, usually. And um, and it is like uh, Helm's Deep or Minas Tirith uh, and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. And here we have um, a much more... Um, how would I phrase this? Uh, differentiated uh, military objective like this. We want to inflict so many losses that they need to uh, come to the negotiating table, which, given the situation in Ukraine, is also very prescient right now. Uh, so That's true. Uh, this, uh, this is just a movie where you can take out uh, a lot of things. And uh, this is why I really love it. So uh, end of gushing. <laughs> No, that's great. I uh, wish we could go back in time and have you on for that episode. It's, it was a, it's, it's a really interesting movie. And I think what you said there about having a lot to tease out of it, I think is the key. It's, it's very layered, which is also something I appreciate about The Last Duel and something I think is lacking in Gladiator. Kind of what you get out of Gladiator the first time is what you're going to get out of it. And I, I always love movies that, that reveal themselves on rewatch and have different, different viewpoints on events, which is literally, of course, what The Last Duel is about. So. Let's jump into The Last Duel. So most of this movie covers roughly the same events, roughly the same time frame from three different perspectives, from Jean, Jacques, and Marguerite, the three primary characters of the movie. Apologies to Ben Affleck, of course. He really should count as the main character, but unfortunately, he doesn't get his own part. The opening sequence, though, takes place in what you might call the present. After all those events have taken place, it's a, a framing device after which we jump back to see the story through those three different perspectives. Uh, the whole thing uh, reminds me in in its inception from the very beginning uh, of the trick the Titanic pulled. I mean, it's not a Ridley Scott movie, uh, but, uh, but but it's just such a sound um, technique of script writing, basically, because we know it will be about a duel. It's in a fucking title. <laughs> uh, so it is not a surprise that the movie is going to end with a duel. So why not start the movie off with it, you know, and leave uh, the the action bit as kind of a promise uh, of things to come, but with a lot of question marks, what it is actually about and what it will mean, etc., etc. Uh, this is just a very clever screenwriting because it primes us for the main event 
and it helps to um, to keep us engaged throughout the threefold repetition that is to come. Especially if you go into this movie cold and you do not know what to expect, that, that there will be this kind of threefold revelation. I think you need this primer in the beginning so you have the promise of mano a mano action in the end. <laughs> uh, you know, that you just know where this uh, this will be heading ultimately. Just as, and why do why do I mention Titanic? Uh, because no one will be surprised that the Titanic sinks in the end. Uh, so what Cameron did <laughs> was this ingenious uh, decision to actually explain you how the ship sinks in the beginning, so he can concentrate on the story later. Um, and and this is just uh, very very good. And here we have the same thing. You know there will be a duel. You don't know why and how and how it will affect everyone, etc. Uh, but the main event is already uh, staged. It is a fight to the death, uh, and so everything uh, goes uh, goes on to this end point with laser precision. Yeah, I love those opening shots of the characters getting dressed. They're they're meeting social norms. They're preparing to be seen in public. But I think it's yeah, it's also a great metaphor for storytelling that they are going to be dressing the events with their perspective, so to speak, and then it's going to be all edited together, just like this opening montage. And it's a great framing device. It casts the duel itself as the inevitable result of everything we're about to see. The movie revolves around two acts of violence, one in response to the other. So when we hear the stories about the assault, we'll always have this end state in mind. Here at the start, we don't know the why, only the what, the violence. And there's we get this uh, beautiful dissolve from the rain against the window to a landscape shot, literally imposing perspective on nature, which is what the movie's all about. Set up here, you have this religious fear of God as the real center of authority, fearing his violent wrath. We first see Matt Damon's Jean with a crucifix behind him and his sword in front of him. Two crosses for him to be strapped to throughout the movie. Yeah, this movie is taking religion seriously, and much more so than the usual genre fair. This is a problem I have with many uh, movies set in the Middle Ages, you know, that they usually assume everyone is an atheist, mm -hmm. uh, and you have one or two true believers, uh, but everyone else more or less does not believe in this stuff. You know, you have um, you have a wink with it. Um, Song of Ice and Fire does the same thing, basically, where there is a lot of atheists uh, in the foxholes, and uh, this movie d does not. Uh, which, which I like, because one should take uh, the religion of these people seriously if one wants to understand them. I like that balance where, as we'll get into later, the movie pokes holes in religion as an institution, but still acknowledges its power from a certain point of view. You know, from, from Jean's perspective, he's going through this arc of Christian torment and temptation. And then, of course, the other characters see things quite differently. So we get the setup for the duel. We get the two combatants on their horses racing towards each other, and the cheering of the crowd fades. So just for a second, it's not about how you're seen. It's not about your reputation. It's just about the fact of mortality, that Lance coming at you. They crash together, and then we cut to black so the movie proper can start. And we start with Jean's story, The Truth According to Jean de Carouge, and we get this recurring opening in both Jean's section and Jacques' section with the Battle of Limoges. The camera descends from tree branches like it's nature and God watching us kill each other, and we get... The Battle of Limoges from the Hundred Years' War. And the Hundred Years' War was famously brutal, especially to the civilian population. And I always think of this passage from Hilary Mantel's book, Wolf Hall. The English will never be forgiven for the talent for destruction they have always displayed when they get off their own island. English armies laid waste to the land they moved through. As if systematically, they performed every action prescribed by the codes of chivalry and broke every one of the laws of war. The battles were nothing. It was what they did between the battles that left its mark. They robbed and raped for 40 miles around the line of their march. They burned the crops in the fields and the houses with the people inside them. 
They took bribes in coin and in kind, and when they were encamped in the district, they made the people pay for every day on which they were left unmolested. They killed priests and hung them up naked in the marketplaces. As if they were infidels, they ransacked the churches, packed the chalices in their baggage, fueled their cooking fires with precious books. They scattered relics and stripped altars. They found out the families of the dead and demanded that the living ransom them. If the living could not pay, they torched the corpses before their eyes, without ceremony, without a single prayer, disposing of the dead as one might the carcasses of diseased cattle. This being so, the kings may forgive each other. The people scarcely can. Yeah, George R. R. Martin famously based his descriptions of war and how bad it was on the civilians on those chevauchets uh, of mm-hmm. the 100 Years' War. I mean, I'm I'm absolutely mutilating uh, the pronunciation here, but um, this this tendency where the armies would go through the land and essentially um, scorch the earth so that their opponents were starved out, and that means the civilians are starved out. Um, that is uh, how the Hundred Years' War was fought most of the time, and how most wars were fought most most of the time you know those big battles like Eshinkur or Cressy um, and uh, and those those were the exception usually you have uh, this very small scale violence like the Amory Lorge uh, is burning a, a town basically and the Song of Ice and Fire version always seems a little bit over the top sure. even the English would play, glance sideways at Tywin Lannister and that is quite saying something uh, according to the source you just quoted Right. I think, you know, obviously George is, is ramping up the violence to try to incline our sympathies against Tywin Lannister and to see the, the brutal cost of the war he's making. And I think Scott's after a, a similar angle here, kicking off two of his three stories with this moment. And the English side during the Siege of Limoges that we see here was led by Edward the Black Prince, son of King Edward III. Uh, Jean Fossard's account of the battle describes Edward sacking the town, massacring thousands of civilians in his frustration over having lost the town to the French in the first place. Yet this account is increasingly disputed. Other contemporary accounts have the figure much lower, and a letter home from Edward mentions prisoners, no civilian deaths. One author goes so far as to call Froissant's account a slur against Edward, as Froissant was in the employ of the French count at the time. And that's just so appropriate for a movie all about competing perspectives and disputes over the truth. In both reality and the movie, the meaning of this battle changes, depending on who's telling it. Jean and Jacques' accounts have one thing in common. The English soldiers butchered civilians right in front of them. It's violence as a display of power. There's that great line from Gangs of New York, the spectacle of fearsome acts. That's how you take and hold power in this world. Yeah, it's also telling that in both versions, we never really learn why these people are being killed. Jacques doesn't care at all. And Sean only uses them as a legitimation for his uh, thirst for glory. You know, it's, oh my God, they're killing the prisoners. We need to attack. And, uh, but why are they killing the prisoners? Can we actually prevent them from killing the prisoners? It, it doesn't really matter at all. Uh, and Jacques will not even spare a thought uh, for this whole situation. Uh, these uh, Already here we have this very very strong class divide between the knights on the one hand and the squires uh, and the small folk uh, on the other hand. Like I was saying, there's so much of the movie is about uh, stripping through the structures and the justifications and the context to get to the act of violence itself. We see that right at the start. And yeah, Jean, uh, as you say, he's, he definitely uses them as a springboard to glory. We're going to see that more strongly in the Jacques section. In Jean's section, this part of the movie from his POV, he's just the easier everyday, humble, honest hero. He's riding forth fearlessly, declaring for the king. He's going to save the day, and he saves Jacques' life in this version of the story. All that heroism, though, is immediately undercut by the context, by the political realities. They're losing the war, as it turns out, and their new Lord Pierre, whose orders Jean justified, has ordered them home. 
Yeah, this is such a blinket, uh, blink and you miss it moment uh, in the movie. And this is one of the few criticisms I'd allow for the storytelling, because I have to be completely honest, I never got that aspect about Pierre uh, ordering them uh, here, basically, and Sean going against the orders of Pierre. I always assumed that Pierre simply didn't like Sean from the start. Uh, I never connected uh, it to the Battle of Limoges. It could have been a little bit more clearer, or I'm just too stupid to notice. I don't know. No, I think that's a fair point, because so much of the talk later about the acrimonious relationship between Jean and Pierre has to do really just with Jean's personality and how much Pierre finds him unlikable. And that only becomes more clear, of course, when we get to, to Jacques' perspective. From Jean's perspective, He's just doing his best, and he keeps just getting uh, obstacles in his way at every turn. And he's crestfallen by this, this new situation where they tried their best in the battle, but they're getting stabbed in the back. Jacques thanks Jean for saving his life, but Jean can only think of the lives lost in Limoges. We didn't save those people there. Our martial masculinity was not enough to save the innocent and defenseless, which is a theme to crop up uh, for later. Yeah, Jean is posing as the perfect knight here, although we can already see he is not. You know, mm -hmm. the, the point of view structure that this movie employs is already at work here. Sean is unable to look beyond his own blind spots, and he will continue to be. So they ride to Jean's father's castle, where Pierre awaits them. A great honor, Jacques says. Power is conveyed through physical presence. You choose a stage on which to act everything out. Jean says he'll inherit this place one day. Oh, but not for many years, he says. Even on first watch, you can tell his perspective is warping things. He's, he's, he's making himself sound as good and virtuous as is humanly possible. Because it's not his father's castle at all, isn't it? He is not landed nobility with it. Uh, he holds it by virtue of office. And offices can be stripped much easier than titles, as we learn soon enough. Uh, Sean tries to convey the post as if it was hereditary, but it is very much not. And the question here already is, at least in hindsight, I mean, when you watch the movie for the first time, you don't know that yet. Um, but is he deluding himself or is this just how he uh, how he sells himself? You know, uh, does he believe his own bullshit, basically, is the question about uh, this castle and his position in it. It all flows from Pierre. And so everyone's kissing his ring, promising him service, reaffirming the feudal structure in personal terms. And you get these pointed insert shots of the women standing with him watching, observing these rituals and power plays, you know, just from the outside. Yeah, they're on the out, but clearly they understand, the women uh, understand much better than many of the men, and why not? Uh, their survival depends on the whims of men who are brutish and stupid, and so they just have to be uh, much more uh, attentive uh, to detail uh, than the men are, oftentimes are. They have to be able to understand the men to, you know, fill the gaps where they're falling short, as we're going to see with Marguerite running the household later, and also just to ensure their own survival, to try to see the violence coming. And Pierre honors Jacques. They have a very, you know, very honorable interaction, just how it's supposed to go between a lord and a vassal. But then Pierre humiliates Jean, forcing him to kneel closer as he's kissing the ring. And that seems totally arbitrary from Jean's POV. It's like the game was rigged against me. Later on, Jacques visits Jean, joking when he shows up that he's Helen of Troy. A notable reference, because you have these questions, oh, did Paris steal Helen away, or did she come willingly? And those are going to crop up in their own form in this movie. Jacques is here to collect debts for Pierre. And this movie is partially about the cold, rigid hierarchy of power and how it comes into conflict with individual relationships. Jacques is clearly visibly pained to do this to his friend. Jean, meanwhile, is thinking about other debts. He saved Jacques' life, according to him, and he serves Pierre faithfully. From his POV, he's being denied his just reward. He can't pay his taxes. The Black Plague has descended along with war. You can also see a generational conflict. 
Shaq is also the harbinger of a new age. Mm -hmm. He has no problems with counting coppers, uh, as we'll see in his own storyline. Sean, on the other hand, clearly views this as beneath him. He's demeaned by the sheer fact that he needs to discuss this. It's not worthy of a knight. In Marguerite's story, we'll see what consequences this worldview has. So how did the other vessels pay? Jacques says he had to insist. That's how he puts it. Aggressive negotiations. Violence just underneath the chivalric surface, like in the war. And there's really great acting in these scenes. Damon is simmering. Adam Driver is apologetic. Jean thanks Jacques, just as Jacques thanked him during the battle. Jean then goes to war. We hear that the plague carried off his previous wife and child, leaving him without an heir. If he dies in battle, Pierre gets it all. Even as you fight for France, the power structure of France betrays you. Jacques tells him to live for his name, his promised castle, but above all for his friendship, the personal connection at stake. But Jean has to fight, and he puts it as bluntly as possible. I'm broke. I need money. It's true, but also, again, it's there to make him seem sympathetic, make him seem like the underdog. And then you cut right to the horrors of war as Jean beats a man to death. Yeah, this scene strips away all the vestiges of knighthood. Santa Clegane would approve. In the end, these guys are merchants of death. They are armored robbers with a paper from the king covering up the ugliness underneath. But it, but it is all a business to them, basically. The, all the glory is just drappings. And we will return to this theme over and over again. I think that covering up the ugliness is key. We see the kind of mechanisms of that take place over the course of the movie. We cut to a party to cover up all that, that blood and ugliness. You have the women there in service roles. They're greeting, they're feeding, they're undressing. This is the home of Robert Tipoville, a pardoned traitor. You can get away with anything, it turns out, if you're rich and generous enough. What has loyalty gotten Jean? And that's the context in which he meets Marguerite. And he tells her father, Your reputation precedes you, as does yours. Tipoville says, as if to acknowledge his treason, some lessons are learned later in life, which I think is definitely a thesis statement for the movie as a whole. Yeah, it absolutely is. And it is also incredible just how a bad start this is for uh, for the relationship between Sean and Marguerite. And once again, we have the POV perspective here, the point of view. For Sean, this is a moment to shine because he is now the superior and he is extending generous recognition to the inferior because he is smitten by the beauty of Marguerite. And of course, all of this is utter bullshit. But this is how he decides to frame himself in this moment. Right, because that's the romantic ideal, which is something we see explored a lot further in Jacques' section of the movie. And then we cut from this introduction right to the negotiations over the dowry for Jean and Marguerite to get married. And this introduces or develops a lot of the big themes of the movie. Land, money, power, and sex. Emphasis here is on land as the currency of power. It's connected to sex. Someone uh, tells Jean that if Marguerite was their wife, they wouldn't suffer at the task of producing an heir, putting the, the more political land control oriented task of producing an heir in sexual terms. And John is taking as much land as he can get along with Marguerite. That, that's definitely his main focus. Absolutely. And it will take until Marguerite's POV, like an hour uh, from now uh, into the mm -hmm. movie, to see how dominated the proceedings are by the dowry negotiations. You know, here, it seems like uh, our point of view is almost ashamed of it, and he wants it to be mm -hmm. lost over as quickly as possible. But in reality, this was a very drawn out process. That's an excellent point. It's, it's almost as if Jean is ashamed on some level of his own actions, or that he honestly doesn't recognize what it is he's done, which I think is also probably true of Jacques. 
And you see that again, the, the emphasis on private versus public, which lines in with the question of perspective. We have their wedding as another public ritual, a performance of power, a dutiful kiss so everyone watching can applaud and the ceremony is affirmed in their eyes. And even when Jean is saying things like, I'm very jealous, milady," he's saying it with a smile as if he's just flirting. Maybe that's really how he thinks of it, but it's definitely not what Marguerite sees and hears. Yeah, absolutely. And do not forget about the line, you will only dance with me, my lady, or something to that effect. And in his version, Marguerite takes it in stride, not showing how much that costs her, you know, actually. Mm -hmm. And Jean is a hard conservative. He does not approve of a social life for his wife at all. And already we can see the foundation of why he will have such a hard time of defending her. He's very unpopular, he's unsocial, he's forcing his beautiful wife away, which will foster all sorts of resentments, of jealousies, of rumors. He is basically um, laying the foundation for all the problems to come, and he doesn't even realize it, which will also be a running theme uh, throughout uh, the whole movie. He's so blunt and blatant about what he wants, and he never gives anyone else a good reason to give it to him other than he just thinks he's owed it, but that's the natural order of things. And so we cut right from their first night together to observation of some land, his actual focus, the territory that he's been denied. This is part of the territory he wanted with his marriage, but he's not getting it. Pierre gave it to Jacques because Jacques is helping him order his books, as you mentioned earlier. Like you said, that's the future of power, not only relying on generous and impetuous individuals, as they put it in this movie. But this place specifically, this little province, this meant something more to Marguerite than just power, just acquiring as much land as possible. It meant something specific and emotional. She talks about growing roses here, the smell of lavender, a swing her father built on a tree. And John promises he'll get all of that back for her. Again, it's all about debts. And Marguerite says, I know how powerful you are. And, and I'm wondering if she really believes it, because quite tellingly, the scene is completely absent in her own account. She does not say it uh, in, in her version of the story, which is framed as the truth. So this might just be, once again, window dressing by Sean himself, you know, who, who wants to present himself as the honorable, strong husband here. It's, it's clearly not critical to Marguerite's story, because as you say, she doesn't bring it up. This seems to signify much more so in his own POV. And so Jean loses out again, and the grievances grow. Next, he loses his father, and his mother says she's lost in the process. She's getting kicked out of her home. Women have no access to land and power except through men. It can all be taken away because, as you alluded to earlier, Jean isn't actually going to inherit this place. The lawsuit he launched to get that province back bit him in the ass. Even before the duel, customs are being called into question. And his mother tells him that he was foolish to think that just things being righteous would save the day. There is no right, she says, only the power of men. Another thesis statement for the movie, but in terms of Jean's POV, it's interesting that throughout his section, he's positioning himself as outside that system, that he's, he's up against the man, he's struggling against them, rather than what we see in Marguerite's perspective, which is actually he's reinforcing it on her, seemingly without realizing it. The whole lawsuit is such a bad idea from the start. It's painfully yep. obvious. Not only because of the power relations at play, they make it into suicide mission, but you get a clear sense that even on favorable ground, Sean would never win a lawsuit. He misses the charisma and he misses the necessary skills. Mm -hmm. He also can't make up for it with powerful friends. He only has one who is now firmly in the pocket of Pierre drifting further and further away. 
and Sean's reaction is to double down, basically. Very well, alone. It's very contrarian, and it is very stupid, but it fits what you just said, you know, this idea of him being outside the system. He's just a truth teller, and everyone um, doesn't want to hear the truth. Uh, you just can't handle the truth, yeah, you know? And uh, this is Sean, and it is just so stupid and self-destructive. De- uh, self Self-destructive, self-deluding, and just self-righteous, because if he thinks that way about himself, then he doesn't have to do anything differently. And he, he gets to just think of himself as an honorable man, no matter the consequences, especially those born by his family. And his mother doesn't even have to say who's getting the post instead, because, of course, we already know it's going to be Jacques. That's the pattern, especially in Jean's part of the story, that Jacques is absorbing everything Jean doesn't get. It's kind of a zero-sum game here. And one of the bits of storytelling in this movie I absolutely love is the way in John's section, Scott cuts around. Jean actually going to confront Pierre about this. We don't see that scene play out for Jean, and that really highlights the limits of perspective. We only get his report on it. I was angered, but I spoke well. He ignores Marguerite's specific questions, focused on his own narrative. And he says that Jacques is poisoning Pierre with his own story. Marguerite, meanwhile, is just horrified that he did this in public. Again, the theme of doing things in public versus in private. And this is honestly the best use of limited perspective in the whole movie. And there's a lot uh, great use of such techniques in the movie. But this one is my favorite. Because from Sean's point of view, this is his biggest blunder. And the one he needs to cover up as much as possible. So he tries to control the narrative. But he can't even convince his secluded wife. You know, who, who wasn't there. Who has no one else to talk to. And even he, she is not convinced. So who the fuck is he going to fool? You know, the doubt and the fear is written all over her face. Even in Sean's own account, there's just no way to beat around the bush. He is soundly beaten. This was a disaster. And he is just not able uh, to... Um to uh, to come up uh, and outright say it, to own up to his mistakes, and therefore he's also unable to learn from them. Exactly. It's that stagnation that prevents him from developing, from, from seeing these obvious signs. And so we cut to a year later, and they're celebrating the birth of a friend's child. This is where Jean and Jacques, at least temporarily, make peace. They affirm their friendship in the name of the king. And then we get this important moment where Jacques and Marguerite f- meet for the first time. They kiss on Jean's insistence, and Jacques has this, this lingering look afterward as he stares at Marguerite. Oh, and this look is so present in all of these three stories, and it is incredibly important. It differs slightly in every retelling, uh, and the same is true of Marguerite's own look later. And we will get back to this. You know, the looks that they exchange in this scene, this is the most subtle use uh, of the point of view structure uh, in the movie. So just keep uh, keep an eye out uh, when this is happening, because it is so very subtly different in all retellings. It emphasizes the the ambiguity of a moment like that, which seems to signify so much, but what it is actually depends on what you bring to the table. And now Jean goes back to war. He goes back to war to provide, putting his faith in the power structure, and he's rewarded for his efforts with a knighthood. But we get this, this really crucial, funny moment for his character when everyone who took part in the battle is being knighted, and everyone's cheering and laughing and getting along, and then when he's just about to be knighted, he tells everyone to shut up, just so he can soak in the moment and become the protagonist. And because of that... They don't applaud him. They don't clap him. He doesn't get to take part in that communal feeling. And that's just so revealing of him as a character that he's so focused on his performance. But that's what messes him up. That's what gets in the way is this intense self-consciousness and focus on himself. And again, he's casting himself as a badass, yelling out in the fight, why do they run about his fellow men fleeing? He's, he's, he's the lone hero. That's always how he considers himself. And he carries that faith to Paris, reporting to his superiors. And there's an emphasis on his signature, a close-up, of his hand signing the the contract, signing the document, trading his name and identity for the gold they're going to give him. 
Yeah, he is so plainly the loser here, you know, trying to cover up all his missteps in the gain of honor. It reminds me a lot of situations like this in history. It's always this, well, I'm the moral winner after all. And uh, the go-to example that uh, that I return to time and time again is Germany after World War One. It's a perfect example, you know, we, we just, we got soundly beaten, but uh, for some reason we have to cast ourselves as the moral winners of the thing, and next time we will get you. And uh, this is just such a toxic attitude. We can also see it, uh, for example, in the Battle of the Redgrass Field, where he comes to a, a Song of Ice and Fire, you have the same thing going on there. These guys lose, and they lose badly, but then they are uh, turning around and are saying, but we fought well, and the others did not, <laughs> you know, and uh, for some reason this justifies everything in the end, and it is just what they can take, uh, you know, uh, they uh, they staked all on it, they lost all, basically, uh, and now they have to try and salvage something uh, out of it and it is just a narrative that no one really believes i think part of it is a sunk cost fallacy that if you start questioning that that meta narrative then you have to question all the decisions you made along the way to just to to justify that narrative and i think partially it's yeah it's just about pride that you that acknowledging that you put your faith in something that wasn't deserving of it is a humiliating moment and humiliation is what john fears the most from his pov his faith in the system is what's on the line here and it's shattered by what he finds when he returns. Marguerite's behind the window from the beginning of this scene. Again, that, that imagery of the bar is on a jail cell. And John, in his perspective, he speaks gently to Marguerite. She gradually opens up. A man came unannounced, forced his way in, and raped me. It was Jacques. Jean, even in his version, his first response is to ask, are you telling me the truth? He puts it in a neutral fashion and then believes her as his beloved, he says. That's his image of chivalry, blaming himself. It was my fault. I wasn't here to protect you. And the story structure emphasizes that this is only an image. This is Jean's self-projection more than it is actually what happened. And even in this best version of him and his reaction, mm -hmm. which, by the way, is utter bullshit, he's coming off incredibly bad. Instead of comforting his wife, who was raped and who is clearly the victim here, he makes it all about himself. I failed. I was dishonored. It's just so deplorable. That's like, exactly. That's his version of good. Like, that's what he thinks. That's the standard he's supposed to live up to, where I am humbling myself and bringing the fault on myself and doesn't realize that this negates her completely. And the only way to get justice, he realizes, is through Pierre. So how do you sway him? And I think it's it's a very telling moment. And this is this is probably the probably the smartest move, I guess, on the whole that John makes in the movie that he realizes the only way to get to Pierre is through the power of story and gossip. That's how you force Pierre's hand. And that's that's very meta, that the movie is increasingly about the act of storytelling itself. Yeah, and everyone already tells him what a bad idea this is. And yet, he goes through with it, as if he could shame the powerful. Everything up to this point should have taught him that Pierre has no shame at all, and the king has no mm -hmm. honor. But he built his identity on this, on the rules, and he has to double down, knowing where it will all lead violence. And this is the one arena in which he can actually persist. So this is really Sean at his best, uh, you know, at his at his most cunning, basically. He knows he cannot uh, uh, win in the field of court politics. He cannot win in the court of public opinion. So he needs to drag the whole thing into the court in which he can actually win violence. Exactly. We, we started with that that act of violence in the Battle of Limoges. We've kind of come full circle, cutting through all these structures and plans right back to that act. Old school justice, a primal showdown between Cain and Abel. One of us has lied, as they declare in court. But Marguerite, of course, will suffer more than either of them. 
And then there's a great irony to Jean saying God will spare those who tell the truth, given that we're soon to learn there's a question whether he's been telling the truth about any of his part in the story. And John's version ends with him throwing the glove down, the open challenge. I will render him dead at the appointed time. Oh, so badass. Right? John thinks the story should end right there. And we've, we've, we've told the story of blameless protagonist Jean de Carouge. But no, instead, we basically start the story over, this time from Jacques' perspective. Back at the Battle of Limoges, very similar shot, even introducing the, this part of the story. And then it's the same performance of violence, civilians being slaughtered in front of them. Only this time we see that Jacques points out to Jean that this is clearly bait, that the English are trying to bait them into attacking uh, in a foolhardy fashion, following their passions, and that maybe they should think more strategically about this. But John is framed pretty openly here as a fool. His, his father even calls him that. My son's a fool as he rides off to battle. The French knights have been trapped in their own righteous bloodlust, which we, are, is, we already kind of saw start to happen with the opening duel and the framing device. This time around, it's Jacques who saves Jean's life. And you, you can't help but wonder if, if the pattern here is that Jean is just being baited over and over again. Yeah, and already at this stage we can see how self-serving and full of himself Shock and his narrative are. It's almost like every True. shot carries a spur of slime. That's a great way of putting it. There's like a, a patina of, of grossness over Jacques' story, a sleaziness that every character, even the ones who like him, kind of pick up on it. Pierre picks up on it, but I think he just likes that about Jacques because he recognizes it as something being like himself. And this part of the movie focuses a lot on the relationship between Jacques and Pierre, because they spend a lot of time together. And Pierre makes the case against Jean to Jacques. It's full of adjectives. He's just, he's, he's, he's rude and incorrigible. He's worthless. He's just all these unpleasant things. He failed at Limoges. His intentions are good, but as Pierre says, he's just no fucking fun. And Pierre, of course, is played by Ben Affleck at his best. Uh, I, I never really bought him as a leading man. I love it when he plays someone really sleazy like in Gone Girl, which I think would make a, a great double feature with this, because that's also a movie all about shifting perspectives on gender lines. And Pierre, I think, sums it up when he compares Jean to his hounds. Sure, he's loyal, but he's dumb. My hounds are loyal. That's not what I need. And Jacques, from his perspective, is stuck here as a go-between. He's forced into competition between the two men in his life. And Pierre tells him, do not let your loyalty blind you. But that could cut both ways. Yeah, Pierre, he makes for such a great antagonist. I would not call him a villain, because in this, the real villain is the power structure itself. But as you say, this is a role perfect for Ben Affleck, and he really knocks it out of the park. This, this man can just play uh, these roles. He's great. He's just tearing into it with relish, and so many other characters are holding back what they really think, except for crucial moments. And he is, he is always leaning in. He kicks his wife out of the party due to her pregnancy, mocks what she cannot do. It doesn't matter. She can't drink. She can't dance. And then says the night is only beginning after she leaves. Ah, he's such a great guy, isn't he? He starts off as a bit more such sincere. A good host. Yeah, his relationship seems to be lovely, but then they get to the pregnancies. What, 12 of them? Uh, and the whole thing about after she leaves, and you just instantly know what kind of a guy he is, you know? He has the same uh, the same perspectives and the same ideas as Sean has, but he is much better at hiding it. You know, he's the one who performs it admirably, um, who, um, who manages to get across uh, the points that Sean wants to make, Pierre can make. Uh, about uh, his conceptions of relationships and men, uh, husband and wife and men and women and, and all of that stuff. That's an excellent point. Even as he's more cynical about it, he's, he's performing it at a higher level than Jean is ever able to do. And then you get this little scene at the party, this, this language game they're playing with Latin. Pierre is testing Jacques to see if he can read, to see if he can translate. And uh, the subject matter they're focusing on is, is storytelling and the performance of love. 
when uh, Jacques translates the poem, a new love expels an old one, just like the story structure where a, a new story keeps expelling the old one. And this really is where we see that Jacques thinks of himself as a romantic, the way Jean thought of himself as a humble hero. Proclaiming across the table, love is always growing or diminishing. Nothing prevents a woman from being loved by two men, pause, or a man being loved by two women. And it's interesting, the people of the party only laugh at the latter, only enjoy the idea of a man being loved by two women. Because a woman being loved by two men is challenging. Challenging to their beliefs and the power structure. And you can see that many people really do not like him, and that is the reason. He may be Pierre's new favorite, and it is dangerous to antagonize him. But later, when he has his confrontation with Jean, they are more or less in the can't-they-both-lose mindset. You know, it's not like Jacques has many friends himself. He is the social climber, uh, he is a little bit crass, uh, and so on and so forth. And I think you already see what character I have in mind from A Song of Ice and Fire uh, that he resembles, uh, at least in part. Um, but this is something that is is uh, in the subtleties of the performances in the settings, uh, Jacques is not well liked. He is just much better in court politics uh, and in the performance of this than Sean. Performance is the key when they have this kind of this uh, ritual performance of, of, of the the rough seduction on the border of rape that, that Jacques takes part in at the party, at, at the party, telling one of the women, "If you run, I will only chase you." And it's it's all performative. You get the sense that. Everyone wants to be here taking part, kind of. Maybe they're feeling pushed into it. And this anticipates the real thing, what's going to happen with Marguerite. For Jacques, protests are just part of the game. That's just a step in the dance. It's part of the ritual. It's not something you have to take seriously. And like when, when, when he declares, come take some evil inside you right before he has sex. For him, that's just a, a grandiose thing you say. He's not really thinking of, of evil as something being inside him that he could transfer into another person. And the next morning, Jacques compares them to wolves. That's, that's what they are as far as he's concerned. We're kind of bestial. That's, that's how we're supposed to be. And Pierre says he'd prefer the company of the wolves to his wife. That's, that's the yeah. kind of, that's the and worldview these men are locked inside. Yeah, the narrative serves as a weapon and poems uh, serve as a means of foreshadowing the events to follow. This is just such great structure all around. And the whole scene uh, with this uh, reading the Latin word games and all of that, it's just essential for understanding Shaq's character. But because without this scene, I feel, he would just be a very one-note villain. And this one makes him uh, understandable, you know, as um, not sympathetic, not by a long shot, but we understand how he views himself and why he thinks he is irresistible and how he wants to be seen. And it is all in that scene, together with all the foreshadowing and uh, the explanation of, this, uh, of the power structures at work. This is really a strong script and I, I cannot praise it enough. I think it does a great job of trying to make you understand Jacques' level of self-delusion. And this, this ritual scene is so important. The party scene is so important to establish in Jacques' mind that this is how it also went with Marguerite. That They were just carrying out a dance. They all knew where it was going to lead. They were all taking part. And any protests are just to make it fun and add some spice. Like That's, that's how he thinks about this. And as, as the scene shows, he kind of inherited that worldview from other men, but also from romantic poems and romantic stories. That That's, that's the model he thinks he's following. And as with Jean, we're seeing things from his perspective, so we see what he highlights to make himself look sympathetic, the story he tells about himself. That he came up from nothing, he intended to join the church, and that's where he learned his letters, but he ultimately proved to be a libertine like Pierre. He had no place for the, the sexual restrictions of the church. And now we see his education put to work. It's interesting that 
when it comes to the ability of the vassals to pay up. Pierre says the same thing Jean did, that his vassals are suffering. They've dealt with war and the plague. They honestly don't have the money to give him. But Jacques argues against that here. He was sympathetic to Jean and Jean's part of the story, but here we see that Jacques is actually arguing against that. He's talking out of both sides of his mouth. And we see him enforce the taxes through violence against Robert de Thibaudville's servants. The zero-sum game of land affairs. That's what he's taking part in now. And Adam Driver does a great job here. He's very intimidating when it comes to taking away that rich province. He just he does it through pure silence as Thibaudville protests and Driver just stares at him, waiting for the for the chance to unleash the violence that's right under the surface here. He's, and he ends up taking more than is owed, which is, you know, you, you, you can easily see the political subtext here of Pierre and Jacques as this great mouth eating up everyone's debt and sowing humiliation that can only be solved through violence. Jacques' loyalty is contrasted with Thibaudville's treason, which justifies the humiliation and further calls uh, Jean into question about what, what his loyalty is worth. And yeah, this is also this part of the movie is also still just a great showcase for Van Affleck as Pierre when he's he's trying to compliment men, but he keeps forgetting their names. Well done, Etienne, Charles, and he just flinches and it's like, all right, forgot that one, moving on. And then when Jacques shows up in the middle of the night, all uh, in turmoil about what Jean has done, Pierre's just like, come on in, take your pants off. Yeah, once again, Jacques is making enemies here. He's a version of Littlefinger, protected by those in power. And a big part of the conceit is that neither his actions nor his wits are ever directed at those protecting him, only at the other people who view themselves as his betters, but have to fume powerlessly as they are being mocked by the social climber. Oh, will his fall be satisfying? One almost wishes for a POV among the nobility in this movie here. That's true. It's, it's, it's very interesting. It would be very interesting to see what other people in the court make of Jacques and think about him as an agent to the future, like you were saying earlier. And here we see Jean's lawsuit from the other side, that these are just different ways of moving on up. Jacques has his ability to cook the books, and Jean is, is taking things to the courts. And Jean has his claim of, of bleeding in war. That's his, his big claim to the nobility, to the king and the power structure that I bled for you. But Pierre has literal blood ties, and that proves more telling. And he, he enjoys rewarding Jacques. This is where he reveals that Jacques is going to take over that castle from Jean's father. And Pierre says, you will be the new captain, as if by magic. And that's 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 what really gets under Jean's skin. What irritates him so much is it just seems like as if by a curse, by a ritual spell, it's all been taken away from him. Jacques is angry at Jean about being sued along with Pierre. And we're seeing the the escalation at work, the kind of the buildup of tension between the men. And seeing these uh, moments of transition is is so different because... Everything that happens to Jean seems to be so out of nowhere in his perspective, just a calamity from the gods. Whereas in here, in Jacques' story, Jean is the shit starter and he's ruining Jacques' big day. Yeah, to dwell on this a little bit more, so much of Jean's problems arise from the simple fact that he is an awful person. When Pierre says he's no fun to have around, quote unquote, you could first view this as a high and mighty dressing uh, a lower guy down. But it is simply true. Jean ruins the mood wherever he goes, pushing that guy down and getting him sidelined is basically self-preservation, especially among the nobility who has to do everything in public. You know, uh, these people have to invite each other. They have to be around each other in very public settings. If you look at this scene, they are sitting on these benches uh, below these canopies and the men at arms are all around them. They have to perform in public. And if you have a guy like Sean there to ruin your day uh, on top of all the ceremonial duties that you have, you are just miserable all the time. This is basically uh, where the whole disputes about land are a zero-sum game in terms of material wealth. This is a zero-sum game in terms of emotional well-being. Pierre has to shove uh, Sean away if he does not want to be permanently miserable. And, and this is 
purely Sean's fault. And John just doesn't take that that social performance aspect of politics and public life as as seriously as he should. And you see that in his his rant against Jacques and Pierre. This is what he cut around in his own story, only reporting back on it to Marguerite. And it's truly pathetic. He's just saying, you're you're all bullies in high school and I'm I'm the nerd you're all picking on. And only I have the authority to say what is right. And it's this this peculiar problem with Jean where he he thinks he's working within the system, trying to appeal to the courts, trying to appeal to the king. But he has he has no understanding of the actual implementation and practice of the law. So he really can't work functionally within the system. He doesn't understand that at the base of it, all that matters is power and you build on that. Jean's other problem, of course, is that he makes things too personal. He loses his temper too easily and makes this about personal disputes. I've waited for 20 years for this castle, he claims. Compare that to in his own story when he was like, well, I'll inherit one day, but not for many years, I hope. I hope my father survives. And I was like, I've waited so long for my dad to die, and now it's being taken away from me. I say whatever I like, Jean declares, which is more revealing than he realizes in terms of rewriting his own story. And he's when he's frustrated with what he's really dealing with is the sense that nothing actually belongs to him and nothing can be ironclad haze that it all runs through these flawed individuals who just don't like him yeah you can feel really really sorry uh, for Jacques and Pierre here because Jean is just making an ass of himself in German we have a term for that I mean of course we do we have a term for everything <laughs> uh, but it is called uh, Fremdschämen which means uh, to be ashamed on someone else's behalf and this is what everyone's feeling here, unless they're already in the business of openly mocking Jean, which is the next best thing, especially after Pierre leads charge. But no one is enjoying themselves uh, at this festival uh, when Jean, um, uh, Jean comes up uh, and when he arrives. And uh, the party can only go on after he left. So uh, you are just, uh, it is painfully obvious what his problem is here. And so he always falls back on the idea of the king, the infallible ideal who's going to make everything better. And it's interesting that that Jean's perception of Jacques is purely as a party guy who's having a good time at his expense. But from Jacques' POV, we see him as kind of working this grinding day job for Pierre, picking up after him, picking up his scraps. He's a browbeaten bookkeeper, as Elena says of Tyrion in Game of Thrones. And he's in this position of trying to bridge the gap between Jean and Pierre for both political and personal reasons. As he says, at one, at one point, I once held a place in Jean's heart. And in Jacques' POV, Jean is keeping Marguerite captive. And that's the dynamic when Jacques eventually meets Marguerite and learns that they have reading in common. That's, that's the, for him, a key to the connection he imagines they have. It's incredible how Jacques manages to construct a soul relationship with uh, Marguerite. I mean, it's completely mm -hmm. fabricated, as we learn in Marguerite's POV. She has no interest in him and does not view him as a kindred spirit. But Jacques feels nothing if not entitled. Exactly. He says, my decency knows no ends, he says about himself. And he honestly seems to believe that when he says it. And he's also got this, this uh, crucial line when he's talking about his feelings about Jean and Marguerite Pierre. He says, we forgive a child afraid of the dark, but tragedy is men afraid of the light. And I think you can, you can see that overall uh, fall of man theme running across the movie where uh, these people are afraid of the truth of their own story and afraid of Marguerite dragging things into the light. So we get to that party where Jean and Jacques come together and affirm their friendship. And in Jean's POV, we saw Jacques flirting with someone from afar. We didn't hear the conversation. And now we see that Jacques is being rejected due to his reputation, preceding him like everyone else. And as you said earlier, we get that, we get the kiss and the look again. And in Jacques' POV, Marguerite looks at him longingly after the kiss. But even that, even in his own story, she's not 
confirming anything. Nothing is explicitly said. Nothing is explicitly done. This is still only a symbol to interpret, and he's responsible for how he interprets it. Once again, this scene is so decisive for our reading, and the, the most subtle changes come here in how long someone looks, holds a kiss, or moves their hand. Everything is in symbols, because this is a society used to deal in symbols. And symbols, by their nature, are open to interpretation for everyone. Which means you have to be very careful uh, when you use them. So if uh, so when Sean comes up and uh, tells his wife to give uh, Shark a kiss, that is a symbol, obviously, but it can be warped uh, in an understanding that he doesn't want. If Marguerite looks uh, in a courteous way towards Shark, this can later be misconstrued, and so on and so forth. Uh, symbols are dangerous, is the point. People project so much into them and then build their, their thoughts and words and actions on them. And that is really what end up, and that really is what Jacques and Marguerite end up talking about here. They're talking about reading the world opening up beyond your own mind to take in the world through another's eyes. And there's this question of flattery versus reality that Marguerite thinks that Jacques is just flattering her, and he says, "I only speak the truth." Ah, but what is truth? There is no objectivity to be had, like ever. Truth is always subjective, and this movie hammers it home. And that becomes especially so because you, everything is being filtered through language. They're talking about Parseval, they're talking about it being translated into multiple languages, they're speaking in multiple languages, and that speaks to the multiple perspectives at play. And then John sneaks up on them, like he's, he's the villain in a slasher movie. Again, John, you know, from his perspective, Jacques is always the one interrupting things from Jacques' POV. Jean is always the one interrupting things. And then we get this scene where Jean and Marguerite are dancing. And we know from Jean's POV that what they're talking about as they do that is repairing the friendship between uh, Jean and Jacques. We see that more of that in Marguerite's POV. But Jacques, in his POV, he watches them from afar. He sees only her glances, only Marguerite looking at him and interprets them as flirty. And he gets told in this moment to even think is to covet. And so those, those are the restrictions of faith right there that make you guilty inside your own mind. And part of what's going on in the movie, I think, is men like Pierre and Jacques are responding to those restrictions by running as far as possible in the other direction, that they are trying to defy those restrictions by just unleashing the full savagery of power. And then we get this uh, little dream sequence, kind of an exception to the rule to how the film handles perspectives generally of keeping us grounded in the real, even from someone's POV. This takes us deep into Jacques' POV, the little dream sequence where Marguerite is into him and they have sex. And he, I kind of got the sense rewatching re this that Jean doesn't even dream, that he's so lacking in inner life he wouldn't even have a moment like this. It gets into something Jacques uh, Squire says to him, that he thinks Jean and Marguerite wouldn't even have anything to talk about. And uh, Jacques is, is clearly thinking very romantically about Marguerite at this point. He's trying to restrain himself by saying that the debt we owe to friends is the greatest, the, the debt he owes to Jean. And again, that question of literal versus personal debts that come up in the movie. And the Scottish front is mentioned, where we saw Jean going off to war. And Jacques says, ah, Jean's going to come back from that. He wouldn't bet against Jean in battle, but he'll have to before the movie is over. Yeah, there's all this subtle foreshadowing, and it's so masterfully hidden within the story structure. I, I keep repeating it, but this script really is a marvel. Absolutely. You can see that woven in on rewatch once you know where it's all headed, and you're, you're looking for little nuggets like that. Jean returns from battle a night, as we already knew, but now we see him use that as his only weapon against Jacques. And it really doesn't give him what he wanted. The irony here is that both Jean and Jacques has what the other wants. And what they currently have isn't making them happy. Jean is always unwelcome among allies. Just as he was in Scotland, he said his allies turned on him. Which is, according to him, the story of the entire movie. In the process, Jean lost everything. He lost his men. He lost time with his family. 
He gained only the empty title, and he curses the time he spent there. Jacques, again, from his perspective, trying to help Jean out, says, well, that's no fault of your command. Soldiers are always parted from their fortune. And Jean threatens Jacques on a basis of class. As you said, the theme of class cropping up, this is, this is all Jean has over Jacques at this point. I will not be patronized, he said. Just as earlier when he was getting knighted, he shuts down any hint of a good time. You can't have a party with Jean around. It's just it, that smoldering resentment for everything Jacques gets. And Damon really sells it, that kind of feral glint to his eyes, the way he snaps his jaw. And you know, this is in part why we give people titles, to keep them in line when they're losing all else, to give them a sense they still have an advantage. You will call me sir. Sir, sir, he repeats himself over and over again. And now we're starting to see Jacques' anger build up in response. Everyone is wounded, everyone is wounding others, and we always go around and around and around. Instead of realizing where the problems come from, they reproduce structures that will eternally generate the same conflicts over and over and over again. They cannot win this, none of them can, unless they break the wheel, uh, to quote another series. That's a great point. That that blood calling for blood angle is something that comes up a lot in, in Scott's movies. Like that's what happened in the first Alien movies. Humans repeat the mistakes with the aliens that a previous race made. And then in Blade Runner, we kind of see the, the same cycle of violence being taken out on humanity's children, the machines. And it comes up in a historical context here. And Jacques takes his anger out on Marguerite. And so now we get the scene of the sexual assault from his side. And it's, of course, it's performance and lies that get him inside, shot through with a romantic filter of, I've dreamed of you, I had to come here, I'm driven by my passion, I have to do whatever it takes to get inside this castle. Jacques goes to his knees as if he serves Marguerite with a poetic declaration of love. Everything I have is yours, he says, which is not even remotely true. There's n nothing he has is going to be transferred to Marguerite because of this. He's not promising to, to take her to a better position to actually improve her life. That's just something you say. And the point he keeps coming back to over and over again is denying his own responsibility. It cannot be helped. We could not help ourselves. And you see how angry he is in both this part of the story and Marguerite's when he dismisses the witness, the guy who got him inside the door. For all he's saying that this cannot be helped, he really doesn't want anyone around to see what he's about to do. And Jacques makes this case to Marguerite that Jean's not good enough for her. He doesn't appreciate her. He's cold and callous. And you know, Jacques is 100% right about all of that. What he's wrong about is himself. He honestly thinks that he is a, a contrast to that, that he's different. He thinks he's sweeping her off her feet with his compliments. I love you, he declares, so you must love me. Those are the rules. That's the dance. And when, when Marguerite runs away, when she goes up the spiral stairs, she loses her shoes. And from Jacques' POV, that it seems coy. Like, this is a Cinderella story. He's supposed to pick it up. He's supposed to follow her. He thinks she's teasing him like that woman was at the party earlier. But just as we said earlier, how even in Jean's story, he still cares more about himself. Even in Jacques' story, Marguerite is calling for help. And Jacques has to make the decision to interpret that as play acting. Saying, as he did at the party, if you run, I will only chase you. A line he's memorized. Uh, it's absolutely horrible that the act, even in his own telling, is so clearly rape. Yes, she slips off her shoes, but that's all he has going for in his version, basically. For us, it's not conceivable how he could imagine himself to be desired here. And as with Sean, this is the best version of this narrative. It's the one where he has full control to, uh, to the POV structure, and he completely comes off as a rapist. So, I mean, these people are just way over the line. Absolutely. It's none of it is to excuse their actions or to justify what they've done. It's to drop us into what guys like Jacques and Jean consider normal, that this this is for them. This is every day and that they, they are shocked by the idea that other people might think differently. 
And that's, that's I think, is, is the point of plunging us into their POV before we get to Marguerite. And just the, just the appalling nature of how Jacques talks about this, that he tells Marguerite, oh, you might think you're guilty because of this, but you should keep it a secret for your own safety. And that's just, that sums it all up, that it's this, this vicious threat buried inside what he thinks of as a compliment. We could not help ourselves, he says, we, that this is something we did together. And that's, that's so telling because Jacques still believes himself a sinner. He still goes to confession about this. But what he thinks he's done is the sin of adultery committed against Jean. But he's, he's thinking of this in terms of the social norms he broke, not, not that he physically harmed another individual. And we come back to the Gospel of Matthew, that the religious themes are rearing their head, that again, even thoughts are sin, and that the temptress is Eve, that she's the devil, and that's what makes your feelings not love. Not the fact that you just showed up to this woman's house broken and raped her, but it's something to do with her being wrong. That, that, that's what makes this not sacred. That's what makes it not love. This is a test from God for Jacques, just like the test from Pierre. That's, that's the, the arc that he's being told is his story. And speaking of Pierre, he gets his, his big Me Too scene. This is where Scott starts, Scott and the screenwriter start all but explicitly nodding to the present day and how these issues are often talked about, in which Pierre is basically coaching Jacques on his media strategy, that this, the story is already spreading and the charge is unspeakable. That's what Pierre says. But, you know, they're, they're having to speak about it. And he says, it is, it is you and I here. It's just us talking, doesn't leave the room. Yeah, and then we have this quote from Jacques. She made the customary protests, of course. It's such a throwaway line, but it gets me every time. It hit me like a hammer when I first watched the movie, and it doesn't lose any of its impactful force uh, on rewatch. That's that's what really gets at what I think the movie is doing with with Jacques is is showing you how this this self contained loop of logic that he's inside that he's inside that cuts himself off from the consequences of his own actions because everything is. A performance and everything is a custom, the customary protest. That's supposed to happen. That's part of it. He thinks it's something you do to keep up appearances. It's role play so it doesn't seem like she wants to have an affair. That's just what ladies do. And he, he says this line about when it, faced with the accusation of rape, he says, why would I even need to do that? Which is a common argument you still see nowadays that is, is just so thoughtless that like attractive men or men who have lots of consensual sex, they wouldn't rape because it's it's not something they need to do, as if that's really what's going on, as if that's really a logical framework you can impose on an act of violence like this. And the truth is, is that Jacques honestly thinks that he's in love, that he honestly thinks that this is how romance goes, that this is the kind of affair that, you know, the poems he likes, one of those will be written about this someday. And this is really the decisive thing. Not only does he think he is in love, but he's also convinced this justifies everything he does. How often have we seen people say this in movies? But I love you brought forth as if it ever was an apology, as if it ever made something better. You know, the great sweeping romantic gestures, they do not excuse your behavior. They do not give you license to do bad things. But this is such a pervasive trope, uh, and I would even say a pervasive romantic trope, and this really needs to go. And I like that this movie is criticizing it and uh, that, uh, that it is criticizing the narrative power of it specifically, you know, because these people are um, born and raised with these stories in mind. Life is not a song, Sweetling, uh, and all of that. And here it comes through. Um, Shaq in this version is basically Sansa Stark with a lot of power and a very dark mind, but he he is infused in all of these stories. He believes them. And he thinks he actually plays out a part uh, in life. 
and this is so harmful uh, to everyone around him. And this is where Pierre starts breaking the fourth wall and, and pretty much alluding to directly what the movie is about when he says in regards to the accusation of rape, well, the common mind has no room for nuance. They see heroes and villains. Deny, deny, deny. Again, very common terms in terms of modern PR strategies around accusations of rape and sexual assault that it's your word against his and we'll, we'll muddy the issue. We'll make everyone think she's lying. And I think it's so telling that he says, yeah, that we divide everyone into heroes and villains. Cause I think part of what the people, part of what the screenwriter is trying to get at here is that both Jean and Jacques think of themselves as the hero and the other as the villain, but they're really both the problem and they're flip sides of the same coin. And that's kind of the, the nuance we have to keep in mind here. Not that one of them is secretly the good guy, but that, but that neither of them are. And that's that same cynicism that applies to the system they're working within. That Pierre says, you know, it's all about who the overlord is, and your overlord just happens to be me. Even as the, the king presides over the official trial leading towards the duel, he's just describing everything with glee. He's saying, if anyone runs from the city, we'll have to hang you. And he's just, he's grinning. He clearly hopes someone will chicken out, so he gets to be the one to inflict violence. Like Jean's mom said earlier, there is no right, only power. Jean goes over Pierre's head. Pierre's wife looks just stricken by the whole thing. You get these interesting shots of her throughout the movie suggesting she's actually absorbing what's happened to Marguerite. She takes it seriously, but she can't speak up. And Pierre tries to clamp down on the gossip that Jean is spreading everywhere that we saw in his section of the movie, saying that, oh, she must have dreamt it. That's what that's what uh, Pierre comes up with in terms of Marguerite's POV. Ironic because Jacques was the one who had the dream sequence earlier, and he's the one who interpreted that dream as reality. As for Jacques himself, he goes to talk to his, his friend involved in the church. And there's some very cynical church and court politics here that his friend tells him, oh, you can, you can escape the secular courts. We can try you in, uh, in a religious court. And we're very used to that because more priests are accused of rape. So you get the sense that entire institutions exist to protect Jacques and to exist to protect men like him. Jacques somehow is still concerned with honor, with the question of old school power. He wants control of the narrative. I said publicly this never happened and that should be enough. I, I want to preserve my, my stainless, faultless reputation. Yeah, this reminds me a little bit of Robert uh, when he talks about honor after uh, uh, commanding to murder Daenerys where Ned explodes like, you talk about honor? I mean, what are we doing here? But in general, the legal defense of Team Jacques is basically non-existent. But it doesn't matter because this is not a system uh, based on rule of law. As you point out, it's about power. Uncertainty comes from who actually wields the power. Is it Pierre? Then the charge is done. Is it the king? Likely the charge is done as well and they'll win, but who can be certain? Uh, or is it God? Then all bets are off. And it is on this ambivalence and this ambiguity that Sean's strategy rests and that the whole um, suspense of the story basically comes from. The priest that... Jacques is talking to points out the risk Marguerite is taking, that she's putting herself on the line. She could die horribly. And as he says, formerly, this is not about her. This is a property crime against her male guardian, laying out exactly what's happening to us. And I think this is this gets at something crucial for the movie, that the irony of, of them saying that this isn't matter. This isn't a matter for a duel. This should be settled quietly. They think the duel is barbaric, but not the rape. That they're fine with, that they take as a custom or something that just happens as part of a romantic narrative in, in Jacques' POV. But it's, it's the duel itself, this, this, this old school process that is fading away that John has revived. That's what needs to go. That's what needs to be left on the ash, ash pit of history. And Jacques accepts the duel, turning the accusation of lies around John. 
But again, there's that great irony because both of their stories are lies. As we find out when we shift into the third section of the story told from Marguerite's POV. And throughout the movie, we've been seeing each chapter introduced with the truth according to Jean de Carouge, the truth according to Jacques Legree. And now we see the, sh the truth according to Marguerite. And as her name fades, the truth lingers on the screen. Very briefly, it's not hitting you over the head with it, but there is a reason this part of the story comes last. It tears through the bullshit of the other two, exposing their pretensions for what they are by contrasting them with her confinement and powerlessness. Yeah, I'm still not entirely certain whether I like that Scott tells us explicitly that this is the truth. What do you think about this? Uh, do you think it's too, um, you, you just said, okay, it's not hitting you over the head, but still it, it is telling us that she has um, a version of the truth, basically. It is, it, this is an interesting point where I think the ambiguity of the narrative runs headlong into the larger political and social points it's trying to make, which is that her story has been covered up by the stories of the other two. You, you, I think you could say it dispels the ambiguity of it, but I think it, it does so intentionally to to hammer home to the audience the kind of the emotional power of what we're about to see, that we're finally seeing a revelation. We're seeing something that was covered up. And I think for me, the core idea here is that Jean and Jacques could not possibly imagine this part of the movie existing at all. Like they can imagine things from each other's perspectives. You see them thinking about what the other one might be doing. But they don't recognize Marguerite as someone with an inner life who might have a story of her own to tell. And it's not just them. No one does. Think of how other women are treated in the first two stories, from Pierre's wife to his sex toys. They're all just objects, living and breathing extensions of functions. It's not a coincidence that in both story arcs, no women play any role, whereas in Marguerite's, three do. Suddenly other women get to exist in the narrative. They, they crop up out of nowhere because Jean and Jacques weren't paying any attention to them. And all the, the talk in the movie about language and storytelling and public presentations comes to a head here, with a character whose voice is controlled along with her body, whose private life is made public even as its worth is being denied. It's in Marguerite's section that the movie, mo that the movie most clearly makes the case that Jean and Jacques are two sides of the same coin. The former's stuck-up self-righteousness and the latter's libertine romanticism lead to the same place, as far as she's concerned. And the opening... We don't get the Battle of Limoges in, in Marguerite's story, of course, because she wasn't there. So instead, the opening focuses on the dowry. This, this blunt exposure of women as a medium of exchange in this system, a way for men to express power to each other. Yeah, it's fascinating how different the wedding is from her perspective. She concentrates on the demeaning bartering of her being exchanged as a token, a piece of meat, whereas the smiling subordination under Sean's rule, and all other knights, you remember, is completely missing. This is how the wedding really went that Jean was furious to learn about the province he lost to Pierre and then to Jacques, erasing any possible hint of romance at his winning, any idea that this might be about two people. This really is why no one likes Jean. His obnoxious attitude makes it impossible to overlook the corrupted nature of all this. People who can have a good time make it easier to pretend this is all a party. We're all consenting to this. And that's Jean's sin in the eyes of the public. He doesn't stay in character. He doesn't know his lines. Yeah, we already talked about the power of narrative. Here, we get to see the opposite side of the coin. If you refuse to play the game, you will be punished harshly. Sean isn't even conscious that he's doing that, which adds to the misery of it. He's not like Sander Clegane, who knows what uh, what game is played, decides to stay out of it, and models himself into a quote-unquote truth-teller by constantly hurting and mocking people. Sean does this without even realizing what he's doing, which somehow makes it even worse, or at least pities him. He reminds me of Stannis in some ways, and that kind of blunt insistence on I'm following the rules without recognizing that 
getting people to get along with you is a huge part of how those rules actually get implemented, and he's just not interested in that at all. As John negotiates, Marguerite looks at a statue in the church, this kind of image of how her wedding day is supposed to go, and you can see her silently realize that it's an image, nothing more. Under it is power politics within a hierarchy of gender. All Jean has to offer her, as he says, is a name of value. Again, mocking his new father-in-law for his treason, but I think he's really just resenting that the money makes the treason go away. And also, let's not forget, he only marries her for the money, but don't point that out to him. That could prick his own sense of self. Never point out to Jean what he's doing. That's what mm. angers him more than anything else. And he, he, he says that he assumes Marguerite's going to be able to live up to her wifely duties, crudely discussing this in front of others. And she, you can see again her face fall as she realized she is just condemned to bear many children with no one asking her thoughts. And you have that, that cross looming in the background that she's, she's being sacrificed and she's being asked to, to subordinate herself. They want her to be a statue too, basically. You get this emphasis on all this work into dressing her for the wedding and then it's all just stripped away and John is just grunting on top of her on their wedding night. Not, not sexy or romantic in the least. And it's, it's when he says, I, I hope this was pleasurable for you when it's all over. And perhaps we have conceived, but of course we know better. Uh, the significance of the pleasure aspect comes later. At this mm -hmm. point, one could chalk it up to Jean failing to show more than superficial courtesies without really being interested in the answer. But here again, the answer is even worse. We learn about that later. And then we come back again to the look and the kiss between Jacques and Marguerite. And this, this, and this one, it's just entirely ambiguous. You get the sense focusing on Jodie Comer's expression that Even she doesn't know what to think about what just happened. But the point is that everyone claps. The point is that they've affirmed everyone getting along in public. And that, as far as the power structure is concerned, is all that really matters. Yeah, the whole kiss is so bizarre from our point of view. But in medieval times, the whole kissing thing was much less fraught than it is in the bourgeois aesthetics of today. It's an artifact that shows you how alien the mindsets of these people are compared to ours. And maybe that ties into Jacques as kind of the future, as you were saying, that he has, he has this, this different mindset and approach to the social rituals, which will, which will directly contribute to the violence here. Later on in that same scene, we see Marguerite talking with other women, and they talk about how Jacques is dangerously handsome. That's how they put it, dangerously handsome, with, which gets at really what they're talking about. He has a, a reputation, they say, and they, they leave it somewhat ambiguous as to what that reputation is, whether it's just as ravishing or they've heard stories that he's a rapist. And the women's perspective on him is linked to war and public performance. One says she might sleep with him if her husband dies at war. Another one says she might regardless. And that horrifies a third woman. And how she puts it is, I should be neither seen nor heard with you, lest the negative reputation spread. They'll kill us for stepping out of line. And one of the women says, ah, but you die happy. What a desperate bid for freedom that is. It's like, well, I'll, I'll take one step outside the system just so I can die knowing what freedom is like. Uh, but life is not a song, sweetling. Uh, there is a lot of naivete and belief in the stories and propaganda that they've been fed. And also, once again, foreshadowing, since the women will betray each other's trust. And also, in the end, death will bring happiness, but it's Sean's and Chuck's death, respectively, that ultimately free Marguerite. Ah, that's a great point, that they're the ones who need to fall away so she can be happy instead of her, her dying to try to be free of them. Much more constructive. Exactly. For Marguerite, the, the real question here isn't even about attraction or even about loyalty, I think, so much as trust. That's what she's talked about. And that's, what's and that's what's fallen apart between the two men. That's what she's thinking about. They don't trust each other. And Marguerite is thinking in terms of how she can strategically position her husband. She thinks of her smiles and kind words to Jacques as political moves toward reconciliation. You have to act like this. That's what she tells Jean. 
even if you don't mean it. It's all a performance. And it doesn't even occur to her what Jacques might do, that he might interpret this as genuine and romantic, and then filter that romance through his worldview on gender roles. And once again, I want to point out the subtleties in the performance. Sean didn't even think much of the dancing scene and didn't feature the look. Jacques interpreted it as flirting. And now we see that in truth, she's talking badly about Jacques to Sean. This is just a guy you have to put up with. And yet Jacques interprets that as, oh, she's looking at me longingly. She must think I'm the handsomest man she's ever seen. And then we cut to Jean talking to Marguerite about the importance of horse breeding. Extremely unsubtle metaphor here, as it's clearly how he feels about her. It's, he wants to control her female bodies as he's controlling this horse and control her as a resource to produce children of economic value. And the, the black stallion that breaks in to try to have sex with the mare, that represents Jacques. I think yeah, I noticed in the rewatch that the mane even resembles Adam Driver's hair. That's clearly who that horse is. And uh, Marguerite at this point is trying to get involved in the household. She's trying to help bring in the rents. But Jean stonewalls her. And for all his resentment of his position, he does nothing to improve it. Yeah, the horse is the most unsubtle metaphor in the whole movie. Scott is laying it mm -hmm. down thick, and rightly so in my opinion. There are moments for subtlety and there are moments for clarity, and there's not much time to rip down facades and self-conceptions in the storyline, and there is a lot to rip down. So I absolutely approve of the horse metaphor, but uh, I think even, um, even like a 10th grader could decipher that one. Right, absolutely. And it works, I think, because also Marguerite is supposed to realize that in the moment like oh this is how he treats me this is what he thinks of me and we see them having more mediocre sex and again we come back to the theme of pleasure as you mentioned earlier when john says i trust your little death was a memorable and productive one a productive one that'll contribute to pregnancy which sets up the absurd theories about the female orgasm later but it also connects sex to death that classic freudian death drive shit john doesn't care about actually giving marguerite pleasure he just says i trust that it happened i trust that you came without any involvement on my part, just like how uh, Jacques says, you know, we couldn't help ourselves. Even as these men wield power, they want to kind of deny that they have it, that they're making choices. Marguerite knows she needs to produce a male heir to keep her place, but John just says, didn't have that problem with my first wife. He's just, he's so cruel and self-centered. And it, it's, it speaks to his hopelessness and powerlessness that, okay, maybe it was better off with your first wife, but you couldn't save her. You couldn't save her or your son from death. And this man is a walking microaggression machine. It doesn't matter with Marguerite <laughs> because she has no power and cannot retaliate in any way. But where it comes to people more powerful or on the same level, he will piss them off reliably. I guess even they couldn't say what's the real cause. He's just no fun, uh, as Pierre says, is after all more a cover because they can't confess to their feelings being hurt. That would be unmanly after all. And all the time, Sean thinks of himself as a paragon of manly virtue. It's a cycle of toxic masculinity. It reproduces itself and it generates nothing but misery. And so Jean goes off to war. And Marguerite isn't even allowed to be sad about that because he wants her to be in good spirits. AKA, just smile. My emotions matter more than yours. Smile for me so I can feel better. As he's leaving, she reviews rows of horses and rows of men. Again, the unsubtle connection being made there by the editing. And she asks about the mare we saw earlier. Why is she penned up? Again, basically asking the same question about herself. Jean only knows about riding horses, she tells the stable master. She wouldn't trust him to bring one up, because he would just pass along his views on gender roles to the next generation. And we're going to see, uh, of course, towards the end of the movie that she's able to raise her son without interference. It's better for the mayor to be roaming free as well, she says, because they, they can't say openly that they're talking about her. So Marguerite goes around collecting the rent, and families are paying up voluntarily, because Jean, it turns out, hasn't been collecting the rent. He's failing his duties even within the system. And that's, the emphasis here is that 
he's really the problem with his life falling apart, not her, not the other people he blames. Certainly, Jacques and Pierre are assholes in their own way, but John's own choices are dragging him down. All he can do, as you were saying earlier, is fight. That's his one skill. Marguerite, meanwhile, is giving both the horses and herself new purpose. She replaces the struggling oxen with the horses in terms of sowing the seeds. She's, she's literally sowing the seeds for the future, setting up that she'll be in charge of the next generation. Scott is using the same trick here as in Kingdom of Heaven, where Balian's statu uh, status as a hero was also solidified by his improving of the land that the former occupant didn't develop since he only knew war. And he does it also in Gladiator, where Maximus just wants to grow some wheat. So if you're watching a Scott movie and someone is uh, like, he wants to farm and improve the land and just grow things, uh, he's the good guy. Or she. Hammering your swords into plowshares. That's definitely the ideal for a lot of his protagonists. And the maid Alice says to Marguerite when she comes back from a long day's work, a little color on one's face proves they're alive. And when I was watching this, I was thinking about that as a kind of uh, a justification for Scott's usual ashy color grading in this movie, that he's trying to present that these people can't prove they're alive, that this is a movie full of corpses. It's about the walking dead. And Alice recommends a dress for Marguerite similar to those seen on The Queen, she says. It has a low neckline, but eh, why not buy it? Again, all the things are coming together. Gender, money, sex, and public performance. There's this gossip they have about the queen having pierced nipples. Just imagine that. Something risque being done behind the scenes, behind the public performance. But that's cut off when John's mother walks in. So far in the movie, we've mostly seen men keeping women down. But here we see that women do it too. That John's mother was raised on this system and has faith in it despite her suffering. And after all, if she didn't have faith in the system, why then did she suffer? It must all make sense, or else her life has been wasted. That's how you get the buy-in from the oppressed. They cannot view themselves as oppressed, because that robs them of what little agency they have. And her, her dignity, which is really what she ends up focusing on here and trying to impose a certain view about that on Marguerite. Lady Carouge, uh, born Nicole de Bouchard, she thinks Marguerite should be focused on keeping her husband out of trouble. Which she's already tried to do by talking to Jacques. And look how that's about to turn out. Lady Carouge blames Marguerite for her lack of child. She's sewing some baby clothes, but she says it's apparently fruitless. Definitely picking that metaphor on purpose to say, you know, the, the fruit of your tree has, has withered, shoving a, a shiv between her daughter-in-law's ribs, and says that the problem is Marguerite. Perhaps you cannot be pleased. And so, so this is, again, where, where that question comes up about the, the spurious connection being drawn between a woman having an orgasm and conceiving. And so she goes to the doctor. Which, uh, like the legal system and like the political system in this movie, is set up as another system of authority built on bullshit and lies. And he places the blame on Marguerite's imbalanced humors. You're not pregnant because you're melancholy. And that's on you. Also, he says, eh, might be God's will. Just one of many factors. Something unknowable, unfalsifiable, ever-present, an invisible authority. Which is very, very convenient if you need something to blame. And yeah, there's that, that, that nonsense that she needs to have an orgasm in order to uh, become pregnant. No conception, so to speak, of orgasm as a positive in its own right. And it's connected to a later categorization in the real world of women as hysterical and in need of a medically induced orgasm. And there's, it's just so so creepy how casually the invasive questions crop up in these scenes. And there's this, this core hypocrisy of, of men blaming women for their own desires, while really it's the men who are indulging in their fantasies. Marguerite's friend Marie realizes this arrangement is a burden, as she says, that her husband is frugal with both money and sex. And hilariously, she thinks Jean is the standard of a good husband. Everyone is locked into their own perspective, and the grass is always greener on the other side. These scenes are almost unbearable to watch, physically painful. These are the people that are supposed to help you, friends, family, doctors, and she's failed by everyone in turn. 
And we get this another play of glances in the scene that we did not see in either of the previous two sections. Jacques and Marguerite cross paths randomly. Jacques eyes up Marguerite, salutes her, and she says she cannot be blind to his appearance. A carefully written line to suggest that what's going on here is the surface coming into conflict with reality. And the movie, I think, threads the needle of showing that Marguerite is interested, while also showing how Jacques takes ruthless advantage of that. And I think oftentimes, you know, even today, people act like a woman has to be stridently, vocally against any form of contact the whole time. And if there's an exception to that, okay, then it doesn't count as rape. Were you asking for it? Did you lead him on? Horrible questions like that, which is, is definitely the tone of these scenes, as you were saying. And it's, it's all there to deny that the rapist made any choice along the way. They're all such fools. That's what they agree on, Marguerite and Marie, about men. They're all such fools. And all Jean can do when he comes home is shame Marguerite for her new dress. He can't appreciate her because of the thought that someone else might like the sight of her. He's insecure, he's paranoid, and above all, he's possessive. He'll act the same way after the rape. The idea of the honorable woman that basically denies her sex, dresses so she's completely covered up, is so central to all these conceptions. Men as ravaging beasts that cannot control themselves, husbands as protectors against other men, women as being evil temptresses, and so on and so forth. All could be solved if everyone accepted that no means no, but instead they pile layers of layers of bullshit on each other. And now we're seeing that play out in relationships between women. Lady Carouge, the mother-in-law, was pleased to see Marguerite taking down a peg with regards to the dress, because she has this competitive streak against other women for the approval of men. She tells Jean, oh, she would have stopped the gown, but Marguerite pulls her own power play. How would you have done that? I'm the lady of the house, not you. And so Lady Carouge can only appeal to her son. Are you going to let her talk to me that way? And he says, Marguerite is a grown woman, but the decisions she makes are her own. And it's, it's such a bitter irony that that's only true for Jean when Marguerite screws up in his eyes. It's, that's, that's never an area in which he respects her or lets her make her own choices. It's just whenever she does something that he doesn't like, then, then she must be made responsible for that, and only then. And all of this feeds into the rape. The obsession with dignity over humanity, the reduction of women to objects, and the imposition of a blinkered view of chivalric romance. Jean goes off to get paid, forbidding her from leaving the grounds because it's not safe. Ugh, the irony. And then Lady Carouge abandons Marguerite, making the rape possible. For which she is never even admonished. It's a weird detail that Marguerite is unable to place at least some blame on her for explicitly going against orders for her own convenience. And it is also a cruel move. She deliberately takes Marguerite's only companion with her so she's alone at home, not because she's in need for her services, but to isolate her and to make her feel bad. She's taking out her, her vengeance for feeling slighted with regards to the dress and all, all these sniping power plays have such a cost. And so then we get the sexual assault scene again, this time from Marguerite's perspective. And it's more extended than Jacques' version and it's shot like a horror movie. It fits that whole I had an accident on the road trope that you see in a lot of stories like Clockwork Orange where that's how the villain gets access to your house. We get just the, the glimpse of the other man from Marguerite's POV through the little window in the door surrounded by blackness. Jacques suddenly appears, and Jacques' POV, we see him outside the door waiting the whole time, and Marguerite's Jacques just suddenly forces his way in. There's that just inexorable climb up the spiral stairs. It's a real horror atmosphere. And it's, it's even more crucial here that the other man leaves, that his compliance is really crucial to how this ends up playing out. And in, in this part, in, in, in this take on the story, in Marguerite's perspective, that man laughs as Jacques delivers his romantic speech, and Jacques is laughing too. In this version, it's clear what a pretense it is, that this is nothing but a script, covering up and justifying brute violence. Jacques' POV ignored his own nervousness because he was trying to make himself look dashing as well as righteous. 
he uses the same terrible burden line as Marguerite's friend Marie. Again, he's right about Jean, but wrong about himself and her. You love me too. You must. I think Jacques Squire is just the worst uh, in this scene. Not only does he know what the game is, he's essential in making it happen by carelessly betraying Marguerite's trust. She's worth nothing to him, it's all a game. Essentially, it's the lack of respect for Sean that allows for all of this, cruelly enabling the whole thing. If they had respect for Sean, and if Sean had the status he covets, they'd fear repercussions and not do it. But since Sean cannot perform his manly duty of protecting her, they think they're safe. Little do they know that Jean will force the almost forgotten violent root of the whole social class back in the open, the one they're trying to cover up with their pawns and courtesies, silk ribbons tied around swords. They will basically f uh, fall over forgetting what they are, which is a terrible, cruel irony of the whole thing. And now we see that Marguerite's shoes came off because she fell in her desperation to get away. Her, his footsteps hammer on the stairs. It's a great little bit of sound design where we hear his footsteps echo as they must have in her ears. It's like a slasher movie now. Jacques' perspective is a cruel parody. He was swinging her around like they're dancing while she shrieks. And in Marguerite's POV, we, we get a very intimate approach to the rape. It's not seen from a distance like in Jacques' chapter. And he has the nerve to declare this is our moment. But now we're seeing it as her moment, as something that she was trapped within. And we're seeing everything he had to overlook to think of this as consensual. He sees it as normal because it's so common, assuming that means it's okay. He lectures her on staying silent for her own safety from Jean. He might kill you. He never even considers his own safety. It's not about security. It's about control. And here again, in the self-confidence, we can see why he thinks he'll get away with it. What will they do, after all? She can only destroy herself, and Jean is no threat in the court of law or politics. But she's not willing to go silently into the night. We're left alone with Marguerite as she washes herself in the dress. The symbol of control of bodies and money. It's like she can't bear her own naked flesh. And there's great acting here from Jodie Comer that once the other man comes back, she reaches out as if she's about to speak, and then she pulls back. Her mother-in-law fills the silence, talking about domestic matters, and Marguerite tries to contribute through her tears. She tries to play her role, but it's just all falling apart. Lady Carouge inquires about her state of mind, but only by proxy through Alice. And then comes her friend Marie, looking in through the gate in the same way Jacques' friend did. Marie is part of the system of surveillance and judgment. Marguerite gets no sympathy from her, only resentment, just like Jean versus Jacques. They're all competing with each other, a zero-sum game of reputations and land grabs. There is no room to reach out to one another with comfort. Marie doesn't want to acknowledge that this is how the world works, because it's finally working in her favor. She got pregnant. Same goes for Lady Carouge. She's repressed her own feelings about being raped in order to get along, and can only see Marguerite's desire to speak out as an insult to her, a criticism of her own choices. Which it is. It's zero-sum here as well. If Marguerite gets the recognition she wants, the justice she craves, then Lady Carouge's decision was wrong, her whole existence based on a monumental lie, and she cannot accept that. She has to fight Marguerite. She cannot be in the same team. Marie uses Marguerite's attraction to Jacques as evidence against her, like that in any way justifies his actions. Women's sexual desire is treated like an inherent failing, even as the orgasm is supposedly necessary for pregnancy, so they're trapped either way. Then again, both these women treat her positively gently compared to Jean. And here we see how Marguerite's husband and protector actually reacted to the rape. As you said, he looked bad even in his own POV, but that was a cover-up because he doesn't want to deal with how his actions looked to her. 
He denies her consent as well when he walks in and wants to have sex. She says she cannot, and he says, What do you mean you cannot? There's no conception of marital rape in his worldview. And he treats Marguerite violently, grabbing her around the neck, suspecting her of leading Jacques on. For him, it's just another insult from Jacques along the lines of the property he feels he was owed. They're the same thing to him, women and land. It's all about his own fragile ego, horrified that someone else got to know his wife, and now I'm humiliated. Can this man do nothing but evil to me, he yells. She's only an extension of him. This moment where he explicitly frames the rape as an insult to him, as a problem for him, refusing to even countenance Marguerite's feelings, it's really hard. It's obvious that's how the society works, how politics work. He could acknowledge all that as a fact of life, as something to be worked around while still being compassionate towards her. He could build a rapprochement with her, an alliance to bring down Jacques, but nothing of that. She's at best an object. At worst, she's part of the enemy. Marguerite tells him that I screamed until I lost my voice. I could not breathe. And she says that as Jean is choking her. And you can see her, again, great acting for Jodie Comer. You can see her realize the parallel, that he's not letting me breathe either. And then, in a truly appalling act, he forces her to have sex with him. Another act of rape, essentially re-traumatizing her to re-establish his control of the marriage. And let's make no mistake. This is rape. Marguerite gets raped not once, but twice. And it's not exactly a testament to our own society that this behavior was not a criminal statute until the dawn of the 21st century. Here in Germany, it was outlawed only in 1997, and the party chair of the Conservative Party today voted against it back then and does not regret his vote to this day. We're much closer to Sean at his time as we like to think sometimes. And yet Marguerite still needs Jean to have any chance at bringing charges against Jacques. And we cut to a public discussion. As in the first section, they're using the power of gossip, something becoming public knowledge. Bruce Bolton turns up at this point, Michael McAlton, point playing a minor character who says that they gotta go through Pierre, which is why Jean uses gossip as pressure. Pierre is the corpse, that's what we gotta do. But now we see the arrogance of Jean saying, we are just are doing this. He doesn't care that this is not what Marguerite wants to do. Moreover, making it public is what scandalizes Marie and Lady Carouge. They wanna keep it hidden, keep up appearances. She's caught among all of them. No allies to be found. No justice inside or outside the system. So Jean appeals not to Pierre, nor even the king, but God. That's how he thinks about the fight. We're, we're leaving it up to God. But God is silent on the matter. Kind of a structuring absence in the last duel. And then we cut to Marguerite praying. Lady Carouge wonders why she's done this. Again, she's only allowed agency for the bad things. That's the trap Marguerite's in. And I'm always wondering about this question as well. The movie doesn't really give an answer other than the allure of Marguerite being some kind of proto-feminist. Is she naive about how this will all work out, in what system she's living? Her later dialogue, in which she openly regrets her choices, seems to suggest this, but if so, who's responsible for this? What do you think? That's a good question. Maybe she seemed to have a very strong relationship with her father. Maybe he didn't want to tell her about how things worked in this world. Maybe she didn't get any education from other women in her life. You know, whatever way it seems to happen, she seemed to not realize this until that, that opening of her story with the dowry. That was kind of her, her dawning of awareness about the, the relationship she was entering into. And Marguerite is right that Jean and Jacques hold responsibility, that, that they are choosing violence. Lady Carouge is right that this is a systemic problem. She says this is happening every day to peasant women with the soldiers we send off to war. This is happening all across the world. And that's why I've made my peace with it. She says that my protestations and revulsions were treated like they didn't matter. 
so they must not. My lord has better things to worry about, climbing the ladder like Jean's always trying to do. And that cross is looming in the background as she says she was raped too. Great acting from Harriet Walter playing the part of, of Lady Carouge. And you get the sense that as she says that, she didn't didn't realize how much it would hurt to say it until she said it, because she's just so used to not saying it. That's the power of getting to tell your story. The truth does not matter, she says. Only shame. The beholding eye. They're all being watched like Adam and Eve suddenly knowing shame. And then we get the farce of a trial, with, again, Marguerite's desires being used as evidence of her guilt. Treated like this, this was her fantasy scenario playing itself out when she's the only one breaking out of fantasy into reality. She has this great line, uh, noticing a man is attractive reveals nothing but that. Cutting through how they're trying to link events into this spurious narrative about her own guilt. Even Marie's friendship is used as evidence against Marguerite. If she was your friend, why would she be lying about this? Well, that friendship has ended, just like with Jean and Jacques. Ah, the famous court of public opinion. As we record this, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard are fighting it out in the courts and every little event, every comment is weighed like this. There are no lives in the balance, of course, but the mechanism is still the same. Absolutely. More and more this movie is starting to, to pivot to addressing modern public relations and modern media. And only now does the movie openly acknowledge that Marguerite is pregnant. And even that is weaponized against her. Oh, you have to have enjoyed sex to get pregnant. So this could not possibly have been a legitimate rape. It's, it's just science, one court member says, that you, you can't get pregnant from a rape. And this line, an obvious nod to, uh, to Todd Akin's infamous comments during the, the 2012 the Senate election here in the United States, this is probably the most obvious nod to the modern day, that as with Gladiator and Kingdom of Heaven, Scott's focusing on primal urges that persist down through the ages and how the consequences get covered up with bullshit. Rape cannot cause a pregnancy, because surely God would not allow such a corrupted act. But one common through line in Ridley Scott's movies is that God is not coming back, and we're left with our own choices to make. Men are comparing themselves to beasts and putting the burden of choice on Marguerite alone. And she swears to the truth with horrible consequences if Jean loses. Far worse consequences than he would face, because she is a threat to the social order. His violence is sanctioned. It fits in. It also exposes the monu monumental hypocrisy of Jean's grandstanding about my body against his. It's their bodies against his, but he wouldn't even acknowledge that. His self-conceptualization doesn't leave room for any of it. And just like Jacques' romantic perception of himself doesn't leave any room for what Marguerite might think. There's that great shot of Marguerite on the stand in the foreground, with the man barely visible in the background, on either side of her, like they're both pushing her in. And you, you watch Jodie Comer contemplate the potential fate of burning alive, of lingering on the stake for 20, 30 minutes. The movie cuts to a montage of other faces, people in the court, some of them reacting and some of them not. And so we, we steam towards the duel, the beginning slash ending of the movie, the duel that takes place uh, to determine whether Marguerite was telling the truth. And John takes out his resentment on her one last time with regards to her being attracted to Jacques. And he does it in front of people, no less, everyone watching, taking note. As Marguerite says, Jean never told her what she would suffer if he lost the duel. And she's terrified that it all depends not on God, a perfect patriarch, but only on Jean. Which old man will tire first, she says. Under the surface, she's comparing swordplay to sex, that you old men tire in bed and you're going to tire on the battlefield as well. What Jean thinks of as noble courage and honor is just pride, with Marguerite's life and immense suffering at stake. It's just like the, the battle at Limoges that opens his story and Jacques, that he was... He was uh, tempted into battle by, by the spectacle of violence, and he thought he was saving the day, but really he was just making it about himself. 
I love this coming back to the Battle of Limoges in the beginning. Once again, you can see how perfectly structured this thing is. It's always it's going around in circles, reinforcing each other. The themes are mirrored in parallels. It's uh, I, I could go on a bit for hours. I'm stopping now. No, it's it's terrific stuff, and it really really becomes notable on a rewatch once you know exactly how all the elements play out. And you can see them they're structured in uh, context with each other. And Marguerite finally gets to tell Jean what she thinks of him. You are a hypocrite, and you are blinded by your vanity. That's the real showdown, the final straw for their marriage, more than the duel itself, I think. Her baby is born, so the battle can commence. The kid can be taken away from her like her pleasant childhood memories, just fuel for the machine. <laughs> you wouldn't want to waste a baby, right? If she's going right. to burn, then please without a valuable offspring. Once again, she's reduced to her function as a breeding mare. And wouldn't you know it, Sean's treating his prized horse very badly in the duel as well. And she's finally found something to actually live for and to love, which Jean never really did. This was my life, she thinks, as if she's suddenly realizing that, that this is all she's going to get, that this is what her story really is. And now she finds she cares more about the kid than the truth, which is an honest assessment of the position so many women find themselves in, the position her mother-in-law found herself in. I can keep trying for justice, but that's going to reduce any ability to live my life. So I just have to, maybe I have to stay silent. That's, that's the, the bitter position that she's in. And Jean for once says something nice to her, saying what you did was right. But back to that theme, right doesn't matter to her anymore. Only survival. This is a fallen world, but it's the only world we have to raise children in. And the duel itself, as we get to the end, as we get back to the duel that started the movie off, the duel itself now seems less important than everything that went into it. It's almost an inverse of the rape, in which everyone focused on finding a context to excuse it rather than the act itself. It's a brutal fight that is not about her at all, and so cannot claim to offer redress for what she suffered. It's blood for blood, and nothing more. At one point as they fight, they are literally beating a dead horse. Throughout the fight, Marguerite is elevated, but isolated, alone on her platform. It's a fight over which story is true, without addressing the larger question of which story really matters. And I think, for me at least, there is no real catharsis to be had in Jacques' death, Partially because of the, the muddy, ugly way it's shown to us with his, his Jean sore through his mouth like a tongue, speaking only in violence. But it's also because Jean is doing it for all the wrong reasons. And Jacques will never, ever understand what he did. He goes to his grave not knowing what it is he did. He's even denying it in the face of imminent death, in the face of oblivion and condemnation to hell for all eternity. Whether this is out of desperation, trying to save his life, or whether he really doesn't believe he raped her, I can't say. But there is no insight to be had whatsoever. He's not dying for what he did to Marguerite, but for what he did to Jean, because that's how the system sees it, and the system hasn't changed. Only Pierre mourns shock as his body is dragged off. Meat for carrying grows. Jean gets what he wanted, maybe the thing he always really wanted. Applause. The love of the crowd. He doesn't care about her at all. They kiss, they hold hands, they hold up their arms to the crowd, but it's all a performance, nothing more. And the crowd noises fade for her, just like they did at the beginning when we first saw the duel. Thankfully, Marguerite outlasts Jean. The cycle of violence finally catches up to him, and she's left with her son in an epilogue brighter and more colorful than the rest of the movie, as if spring has finally replaced winter. And we're left with this kind of unanswered question of, who really fathered that kid? It doesn't really matter. They're both dead, and it's not about them anymore. And so it, it's kind of, after a very bleak movie, we do get kind of a hopeful ending, if only in a, a time marches on sort of way. 
Uh, it's a bittersweet ending if there ever was mm -hmm. one. What I find uh, one of the most fascinating things about his um, and uh, Shaq's story both um, is that the story structure allows them to present themselves as their best versions and they both come off as utterly unlikable. And this conceit is so central uh, to the story. And we did talk about the details but this POV structure is very unusual in movies. I do not know many movies that really work with uh, point of view perspectives like that. You get individual shots uh, from a certain point of view, but it is rare that a story is told explicitly uh, from the point of view from a character and does not give us an authoritative narrator, basically. Uh, to to judge the, uh, the the characters involved on a more neutral basis, and of course we know this mode of narration from A Song of Ice and Fire, and many other authors since have tried to emulate it on the page, but it is much more difficult than it seems on first sight, and I think this difficulty is one of the reasons why it is so seldom undertaken. And what really draws me into this movie is the very sim <laughs> I hate this word very similitude uh, on the one hand, which presents people with an alien belief system living in an alien world and alien to us, obviously, and the strong contemporary vibes of no means no and me too. And I said before, if people accepted that women have sexual agency, the whole drama would unravel. It's an important lesson that can be gained from this movie. You know, how, how much pain can be avoided that way. And on the other hand, if women would share their experiences and unite, they could try and change the system. They could try to force change, but they do not and are surprised when others say, me too. Making that visible is so powerful as we've seen since 2018. And it could have been potentially powerful here for this story as well, but it just doesn't happen. And unlike today, the women in the Middle Ages, they lack the means and a more um, like Twitter or Facebook and other social media. And on the other hand, they also lacked a more sympathetic or at least divided opposite. You know, uh, today women have at least some men uh, on their side, whereas in the Middle Ages, Marguerite is going up against the whole system, against the whole world, basically. And what are her chances there? And I also found an interesting parallel to uh, American Crime Story Season 3, which is um, concerned with the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Because there, they also worked with this perspective thing. They gave Li uh, Linda Tripp, uh, who always complained about getting uh, shortchanged uh, and being made into the villain of the story. Basically, she's the point of view character of the whole season of American Crime Story. And in the end, she still comes off as a villain because even in her even in her own story, she's an unsuffer insufferable person. She is just the bad guy in the story. And this reminded me so much uh, about Shark and uh, Sean, who given every chance they have to present themselves as these sympathetic hero figures, they still they still are the villains of the piece. Um, the role of the clergy also warrants uh, some discussion, because as so often, they are functioning as the pillars of the prevailing order. They are espousing lofty ideals, but they are not holding them up, and they are not holding themselves up to these ideals either. And y you mentioned the rape cases before, uh, you know, and... With all that comes out uh, about priests these days, all those uh, sex scandals that the Catholic Church is trying to bury, um, th this is also very pertinent and uh, very, very current uh, in what it is telling us, you know? Uh, just being in the service of higher good does not make you a better person. It just gives you a very mighty cover. So instead of giving uh, those people the benefit of the doubt, maybe those with power, those with authority, especially if this is like God's will uh, authority type, should, uh, be con um, should be put 
under more scrutiny uh, than other people uh, instead of less scrutiny. And uh, two last thoughts. Um, one, uh, so much of the story is about making women and their roles visible. And it's a bit of a conceit of the movie that for large portions of the narrative, they are in fact invisible. And this makes it all the more striking when you can see their world in Marguerite's story. And I think one should feel a little pang of guilt here. Because despite of all the alienness I talked about, you know, uh, about the mindset of these people, the men's story is so much more familiar to us than the one of the women. We are much more accustomed to the story of violent men trying to solve problems with swords than what the female experience in this world could be. Uh, you get so few stories uh, that try to do this, and so uh, this is even uh, one step more removed from our uh, experience. And then, of course, we have the duel itself, uh, and I just want to mention, because we didn't talk about it before, but it is also a very masterful action sequence. Absolutely. I mean, Ridley Scott does know how to um, how to frame and how to direct action sequences. It is a great fight, it is dirty, it is bloody, it is intimate, and we cannot really cheer for anyone. Of course, we need Sean to win so Marguerite can live. But that's the only reason. Churchill's old adage about Hitler and Stalin is true here as well. Can't they both lose? And uh, that's fascinating storytelling all around. And now I'm finished. I've taxed uh, the patience of our listeners more than enough. <laughs> no, and, and of course, they, they both do lose in the end. Time and war claims them both. And it makes me think of at the end to Barry Lyndon, the movie when the epilogue comes up and it just says all the aforementioned personages lived and quarreled during the reign of George III. So handsome or ugly, rich or poor, good or bad, they're all equal now. And that's that's where we end things off with The Last Duel as well. So I think that's that's going to wrap us up for our episode on The Last Duel. Thank you so much for coming on, Stefan. I was really looking forward to it. Where can uh, people find you online? You can find me online on Twitter, at Stefan Sasse. You can find my own podcast, the Boiled Leather Audio Hour, where we talk about The Song of Ice and Fire, where we talk about what's on TV, where we talk about the history of Germany. Currently, we're doing a series on the Kaiserreich, if you're interested uh, in colonialism and World War One and all of that stuff. We are doing a series on our favorite moments of A Song of Ice and Fire. We've just done The Tower of Joy. So uh, please uh, come over. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, Boiled Leather Audio Hour, or by the acronym BLAH. Or, of course, on patreon.com slash boiledleatheraudiohour. Thank you very much for having me. It was a blast, as always. My pleasure. So thanks for listening, folks. As always, you can rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf, where patrons get early access, exclusive episodes, and many more benefits. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf, or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. And you can find follow me at poor Quentin on Twitter. So next week, I'm going to be jumping back into Lord of the Rings with book five. Going to get a handful of chapters into that before Jeff makes his triumphant return to the podcast. And we'll get back into A Storm of Swords. So thanks again for listening, folks. And we will see you next week for chapter one of book five of The Lord of the Rings.